the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Very good afternoon to you. Yes, Warwick Long with the Country Hour. And there is a warning to anybody who does the books on their farm business today, or almost any business, with a scam uh, changing the banking details on invoices and nearly catching out one farmer. We'll get that story on the program to you shortly. We've got an update on the losses due to flooding in Victoria, and they are stark. Uh, the over 8,000 livestock have died, and that's just what's been reported to Agriculture Victoria. If you don't think your figures have been reported, we'll be able to tell you how to do that on the program today as well. Plus, we'll go to the town, pretty much on the road to nowhere, on the edge of a desert that has lost its publican. And now the future of the pub is in limbo as well. That and more today on the Country Hour. You can send us a text 0467 842 722 or give us a call 1300 977 Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Kelly Hollingworth. Good afternoon, Kelly. Good afternoon, Was. In most parts of Australia, farmers need fertiliser to make the soil viable for agriculture. Phosphate, a key element for plants, livestock and people, is an important ingredient in many fertilisers. Most of our phosphate is imported, but new mines in Queensland are hoping to change that. A conglomerate of farmers runs one of the mines in North Queensland. John Cotter is the executive director and says his interest in phosphate began eight years ago after realising the mineral was going to be critical to Australia's food security. We took the view that in the long term, um, soil conditioning and the use of synthetic fertilisers required a bit of a rethink. And so we took it upon ourselves uh, about eight years ago. We started looking at tenements up here uh, and we bought um, the signature assets that were here today uh, about a year and a half ago. What's now happened is global commodity prices have gone through the roof. And so now for our million tonne a year operation, uh, we've had over three million tonnes of inquiry from Southeast Asian countries. Australia's biggest cattle company, AACO, has released its half-yearly financial results and it's a bit of a mixed bag. Its operating profit compared to the same period last year has jumped nearly 30% to $38 million, but its net profit after tax has fallen 37%. Here's AACO Managing Director David Harris taking a look at the figures. I think it's been a really good six months. I think uh, it was really pleasing to be able to announce an improved result on uh, on the first six months of last year. I think we're continuing to drive revenue, drive value for shareholders, and we've got some really good, interesting um, strategies in place that are that are certainly starting to and continuing to pay dividends for us. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, David. I've got AACO's net profit after tax has fallen 37% year on year and it's down 62% compared to what was posted in the yearly results there in May. Now, why is that? Yeah, that's right. So that statutory result uh, takes into account um, fair value of, of, um, of livestock. And so compared to uh, this time, you know, a, a year ago, I suppose those livestock values didn't um, didn't increase as they did back then. So there was actually a slight decrease in actual you know kilo valuations um, versus those periods. So that's where the real difference comes from um, in those livestock valuations versus you know its first six months um, in the prior year. 
The world's first shipment of fully traceable, sustainably produced raw sugar will leave the Townsville port today bound for South Korea. The 25,000 tonne export is being tracked from paddock to plate. The peak body for Australian sugarcane farmers, cane growers, partnered with KPMG Origins, a blockchain-based track and trace platform to develop the system. The General Manager of Marketing at Queensland Sugar Limited, Mark Hampson, says the traceability system will help maintain and further enhance market access. I think consumers are becoming more discerning about what they are using and uh, what impact it's having on the, the social and environmental landscapes in which it's, it comes from. So uh, general awareness and an understanding of, uh, of, of what it takes to produce the product is key for, for consumer today. And today is National Agriculture Day. It's an opportunity to celebrate the world-class food and fibre grown in Australia while also educating people about where the food on their tables comes from. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt is attending an Ag Day lunch in Queensland and this year's focus is innovation in the industry. But do children know what agriculture is? Well, here's what some four-year-olds in South Australia had to say when they were asked this question. Albie, do you know what the word agriculture means? Um, no. What do you know about farming? They've got animals on their farm, um, like sheep, cows, pigs, roosters and ducks and shooks. Do you know where food comes from? Um, apple trees and some of some berries from bushes. My name's Miller. Do you know what the word agriculture means? No. Do you know what a farmer does? They plant wheat. Miller, do you know where food comes from? Yes. You grow food and then you get to eat some. Tomatoes, even fruit and carrots and lots of other food and stuff. And for today, that's Rural News. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you very much for that, Kelly Hollingworth, with Rural News. It is National Agriculture Day today. It's an idea and an event pushed a lot by the National Farmers Federation. In- interestingly, their major partners for National Agriculture Day are Supermarket Coles, which the Victorian Farmers Federation and the New South Wales Farmers Association were both criticising in recent weeks for writing to farmer suppliers, telling them that they shouldn't pass on their costs to the supermarket. Any increase in costs won't be able to be passed on, but if savings were made, they uh, expected their suppliers to pass on those those savings to the supermarket. So I wonder what that negotiation is like around the table. You can send a text and tell us what you think about that. Zero four six seven eight four two seven double two to text us on the Country Hour. Right now, though, let's uh, continue our journey and, and really warn you about a disturbing farm scam. And it's a warning to anyone paying the bills in a farm business this lunchtime. After a farmer in central Victoria is warning people using digital invoices to carefully check details after she nearly fell victim to the complex scam. The, the scam has managed to intercept and change invoices from legitimate businesses, adding texts that instructed the payee that the billing details had changed. As Luke Radford reports, the identity of the scammers or how widespread these attacks are are still unknown. It was just another day in the farm office for Rebecca Hamilton, who was working through invoices when she noticed something strange. I manage the accounts within our business, so I was busy paying accounts and 
two invoices came upon my desk with red writing stretched across the middle of them, informing me that there's been a change of bank account details. And both of these invoices relate to suppliers who we have previously done business with. So whenever I have a change of bank account details, I always send a text message just to confirm that the bank account has actually changed. And when I heard back from the first person, it appeared they have kept the same bank account for two years, and so it rang alarm bells. She also supplied me with the last four digits of their bank account, and it was, in fact, different to what appeared on the invoice that I was about to pay for $24,000 for the supply of lupins and barley. That person in question was Christina Fay, who has a business selling grain. So Beck uh, texted me, and I wasn't actually overly concerned to start off with, I said that I would check the account when I got home, which I did, and we had sent we had sent them numerous, uh, well, not numerous, we'd sent them eight invoices in the past that had been paid, and this was an account that we had always used. And so I, I texted her and said, look, it's the same account, and she sent me back a copy. Uh, she took a photo of the invoice, and it had on the invoice um, in red, uh, in capitals, please note change of bank account details from September 2022. And then the, uh, to all intents and purposes, it was our invoice. Uh, It had our invoice number on it. It had our um, trading details. It was all correct. And that it had been changed. The account had been changed. So where had this scam come from? At first glance, Beck Hamilton suspected it may have come from a piece of online software she's just started using. No, first and foremost, it was the red writing and the fact that two invoices with a very similar format, and as I've looked into it, they've both come out of the Zero Software accounting program, which we ourselves have actually just started using this financial year. So it was the red writing, the fact that there was a lot of similarity in these two invoices from two different suppliers. We put a series of questions to Zero about the incident. A spokesperson said while Zero can't comment publicly on individual customer matters or potential security incidents, the company takes allegations of fraudulent activity very seriously and will work with customers to investigate these types of incidents. It also said that in line with security obligations, the company is required to report any security compromises both to customers and the regulators. Christina Fay says she hasn't had any other customers using Zero report scam activity, which her accountant supports. However, there was another suspect. Zero works through your email account, so that's where the scammer could have gotten in. After Beck um, contacted me about this, I contacted our accounting firm, who they originally set up uh, the Zero for us, and they've not heard of it being intercepted from. Zero. But of course, when you when you send the invoices, you actually do send them from an email rather than from Zero itself. So you, you have to. The email goes out from your business email address, and it's received from their end on their business address uh, email address. So I guess it, it may well be that people have intercepted them at her end the invoices at her end rather than ours. Despite the confusion about where the scammer was coming from, what was clear was where the money would have gone. 
Here's Rebecca Hamilton again. When I looked at them closer, they both had the same BSB number. So I typed that into my computer just to see where that bank account is actually or where that where that bank, bank branch is. And it listed it as New South Wales and both of these suppliers operate and live in Victoria. So I, I thought that was a bit alarming. The branches in question are registered as Westpac outlets. We put a series of questions to Westpac who, like Zero, said they were unable to comment on individual customer matters due to confidentiality obligations. However, the spokesperson did say that business email scams are among the most common scams targeting Australians at the moment, where scammers impersonate a known business employee or supplier, for example, by intercepting emails and sending false invoices. Rebecca Hamilton says at the end of the day, it's a warning to the farming community to stay vigilant, particularly in the age of digital invoices. Yeah, look, when I first started doing the accounts, all of my invoices came through the post and um, and I really liked that system. Increasingly, we're being forced to pay invoices from our um, inbox. So invoices arrive into my inbox and I, I print them off and, um, and pay them. The first was for $24,000. Um, as I said, for the supply of lupin and barleys, we run a livestock business, so we buy in a lot of grain. Um, and the second was a quarterly payment for a lease block for $22,000. So, yeah, both very significant amounts of money. At Central Victorian Farmer, Rebecca Hamilton, finishing that report there by Luke Radford. You're listening to The Country Hour. What a warning, though, having you... Bills intercepted with the banking details changed. Um, a big warning to you if you're doing the uh, the farm finances to keep an eye out for any, well, dodgy-looking invoices. 1300 977 2 If you want to give us a call or if you've had that happen to you, you can certainly let us know. 1300 977 2 I have an update for you as we've tried every week on the program to give you an update on what the losses are to Victorian agriculture as a result of the flooding events, the multiple flooding events, the continuing flooding events that are affecting our state. Agriculture Victoria does a lot of that work and those numbers are are provided by them and I've got them to read to you now. So according to Agriculture Victoria, 8,465 livestock have died as a result of the flooding events, that's a big jump even on last week's number. Livestock missing, 1,132. Fencing damaged in kilometres by flood is 8,810 kilometres of fencing damaged. Hay or silage destroyed, 96,540 tonnes of hay or silage has been destroyed by floodwaters. Stored grain lost due to floodwaters is 1,929 tonnes. Pasture lost in hectares, 83,630 ton, uh, 30 hectares, I should say, not tons, 83,630 hectares in pasture loss. Field crops as well. So when we talk about cropping areas, which has been flooded to the point of destruction, uh, 95,629 hectares of cropping area. And the total farm area affected is standing at two, 256,000 652 hectares of area damage. Now, Agriculture Victoria, as you've heard, we've been speaking to them doing this. They've been making a lot of phone calls out to farms to try and ascertain the damage that has been done. A lot of that has been done off your pick numbers. They've been making those phone calls to you. So hopefully your information is up to date. But if you feel like any losses that you've had are not uh, being reported, uh, you can report horticultural, livestock, crop, or other agricultural losses uh, due to one eight hundred double two six double two six to report those losses. One eight hundred double two six 
226. And uh, a reminder that there are a lot of uh, grants open to farmers, primary producer recovery grants up to $75,000 available to you. That replaced the $10,000. So if you've already got the $10,000, I think you can only get $65,000 on top of that only, I say. Producers that have received a primary producer flood cleanup relief grant, uh, they can get uh, yeah, the $65,000 instead of the $75,000. There are also low-interest ro- loans. Primary producer concessional loans are up to $250,000 to replace or restore damaged equipment and infrastructure to cover short-term business expenses due to flooding. And there are also uh, rural landholder grants as well to small-scale producers to recover for um, to cover costs of disaster impacts. They're $25,000 as well and there are uh, subsidies for transport too if you need to know more about that you can recall call the flood recovery hotline 1800 560 760 but just to go back to the headline on that 8,000 livestock dead uh, 96,000 tons of hail silage has been destroyed and then cropping area 95,000 hectares of crops lost 90 83,000 hectares of pasture lost. It's a huge damage bill and it continues to add up and we'll keep updating you. Hopefully every Friday on the Country Hour, but when we get those figures, I'm more than happy to bring those to you. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. And let's uh, head to continue to talk about the preparations and damage and so forth. This is an interesting one for you. A grain handler uh, says it won't be able to upgrade its site in the Millua area in northwest Victoria this harvest as originally planned. In October, Viterra announced it was going to add an extra 400,000 tonnes of storage capacity at its receival sites due to the bumper harvest. A development application to build two new bunkers at Werrimore was submitted to the Mildura Council in early October, but Viterra says it's still waiting for approval. Dale Ramsey, who's a Carawinna farmer, says... Farmers like him in the region will now be forced to travel further to deliver what crop they get and could be a bumper one in their part of the world. I was pretty disappointed. I thought if Viterra prepared to spend some money on the site, add capacity, that would have been a good thing with a good season. What kind of impacts are it going to have on you and the other farmers in the Millua? If they fill up and are unable to move the grain out, it's going to be a bottleneck of grain. For people that don't have trucks or can't get carriers in, going to make it hard to get rid of your grain. What are the distances that you'll need to travel if Wearamall is at capacity and there's no room there? Uh, I assume you'd have to go to Loxon if you wanted to stay in the Viterra system. That'd be what, an hour or something from us. One way, it'd be two hours versus a 10k trip. Now, Grain Corp's got receival sites at Carwarp and Yelta. Are farmers likely to travel to them just because they'd be closer? Uh, yeah, I guess they would have to look at them, wouldn't they? Did you tell me earlier, though, that there's a bit of a pricing discrepancy? Uh, I haven't actually looked at it recently. There was before Grain Corp were down a bit, but I'm not sure about recently. You've also got the option of storing grain on farm. Is that something that growers in your region would consider once Werrimal's site is at capacity? Or are there logistical issues with that as well? Well, we only have probably enough storage maybe store 15%, 20% of our harvest. But for us, it's not really an option. You were able to get headers into the paddock on the weekend. How is harvest going? Uh, the yields are really good. We've been really happy with them. So far, it's been good. That We've only done 
small amount, obviously, with the weather. I know that a lot of grain growers are looking at the weather forecast at the moment. Is there a sense of eagerness to get the crop off as quickly as possible, just given how wet the season's been so far? Uh, definitely, and also with the high yielding crops. You know, you'd be nice there, get them in the bin, get them in the silos. How are the roads out your way holding up? I know there were issues with sand drift a few years ago. What are they like after all of the rain? Our main road to the silo is full of water. So we've had to go the back way, which is uh, adding time to our turnarounds. Is it frustrating that that's happening? And could anyone be grading or maintaining those roads a bit better, given how much traffic's going to be on them in the coming weeks? Uh, I think, unfortunately, it's just been too much rain because the council have come and tried to repair that section but it obviously yeah before it dries out it rains and fills up with water again. How much rain have you had out at the farm this year? We must have got up to like 430 or 440 mil double our average rainfall. Yeah what is what a nice situation to be in as long as it stops (laughs) now. Yeah it'd be nice like you know having the good crops to get them in but I guess that's the joys of farming. If you can get it off without too many hold-ups, how long is it likely to take? Logistically, it would probably take me at least 20 days just to move all the grain with the truck. <laughs> so, And then that doesn't account for any wet hold-ups or anything. So, Are you hoping to be done and dusted well and truly by Christmas? That's the plan, but it's probably looking a bit shaky at this stage. Or not going to be much harvest this week and next week. There you go. That is uh, a farmer, Carowinna Dale Ramsey, speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. Uh, their Mildura Rural City Council has been contacted for comment. You're listening to the Country Hour. Warwick Long with you today. Uh, love to hear from you. 1300 uh, is our number if you'd like to call. 1300 uh, if you'd like to speak to us. We had a caller before. They've dropped off, but you can call back if you'd like. Uh, let's talk levies in terms of flood response, particularly in that sort of northwest part of the state. Who's deciding what work is being done to shore up levies as flood water rises and what resources do they have at their disposal? Alistair Drayton is Deputy Chief Officer of the State Emergency Service and Incident Controller at the Swan Hill Incident Control Centre. He says levy integrity is being assessed constantly. That is all taken um, case by case in the sense of what can be achieved with what is in, you know, in uh, like anything, um, if we can prevent something from occurring, we'll look at that and undertake an options analysis. Uh, and if we deem it practicable and possible, then we will uh, look at doing that. Um, one of the sort of challenges, I guess, we've seen in the landscape is people on private lands doing their own works. And I suppose this is just a reminder to those people that need to be very, very careful when developing those without any consultation or any permits Um, because unintended consequences can come from that if we are redirecting waters um, where it uh, would go in a natural or normal flow. So that's the assistance that you would get from a catchment management authority or local government to to make those work. So I'd be ensuring or asking um, and appealing to everyone that we're considering or have done that to ensure that they do reach out to those authorities just to ensure that they're doing doing it in, um, in, in conjunction with them so it's done with the right intention, but the more importantly, the right outcome. As the flood water passes on and and the damage becomes apparent, the damage to these levees, the, the numerous breaches on, on various systems, will you then have any role or does that, that fall onto adjacent landholders? 
Well, it falls back to yeah, indeed the land, um, the landowner. When they're whether that is uh, um, whether there is a catchment management authority, a local government, Parks Victoria, in fact, uh, they would do their own assessments on there. Particularly if it's managed, they will then uh, go back and look at those levies in a, in a managed way. Unmanaged levies are simply that they either belong to um, the landowner, and of which they need to sort of look at that themselves in their own circumstances. Is that a concern for you? I mean, I know you're dealing with the current event, but if there was to be a future flooding event in the short term uh, and if the private landholders didn't have the ability or the finances or resources to fix those breaches and they remained, would that be worrying? Oh, look, what would, I can assure you what will occur, as, as does uh, the post any uh, significant event, there will be a review on all of these types of things uh, to look at those and that this is where the opportunities and those types of, uh, particularly the environments of where they are managed, um, catchment management authorities, local governments, those sorts of people will be running, you know, conducting reviews in relation to the response to these types of um, situations and indeed whether they do identify um, particular works that could be done or done differently or moved or repaired, that's something that will come post the, uh, the actual incident. And Alistair, looking forward as the water and the peak makes its way through the system, what's your view on the, the integrity of the levies in, in the areas of concern and uh, are they going to do their job? Look, at the moment they have been and we've had terrific, um, if I could just take the opportunity to a bit of a shout out to all of the volunteers and the communities. An enormous amount of work has been done, um, particularly with sandbagging. Um, the flood wardens themselves, I have to do a shout out to them, that historical information that's been passed on from generation to generation with flood to flood. You know, um, CFA volunteers, Victorian State Emergency um, Service volunteers, Life Saving Victoria, they've done an enormous amount of work. Um, so I'd just like to give a shout out and a thanks to those to help us um, prepare all of the communities along um, the river as best we can. And what are the areas of greatest concern for yourself as things stand? Well, we're continuing to look in my environment. There, as I say, from the Incident Control Centre at Swan Hill, we have a, um, a designated footprint. Whilst the headwaters have gone you know, through Swan Hill now and are travelling further north uh, to Mildura, you know, we've got, we're going right back to the, the beginning of our footprint into some of the communities along the river there. We've, you know, I've got a helicopter up again today looking at surveillance. We've got ground crews going out walking the levees Unfortunately, with the, the magnitude of water, not only going along the Murray River, but indeed coming in from the New South Wales tributaries as well, there's significant rainfall occurring in New South Wales that's flowing into the Murray. What that's doing is really holding the Murray up and preventing the Murray from draining as quickly as it would normal, normally should it be just a rain event in Victoria alone. So that will keep um, floodwaters high for some time. So we're all about maintaining and watching the levees that are in place at the moment, their integrity. So... If we do feel that there's anything um, not quite right, we do some quick remediation works in, in on and around those. Um, but they're, they're being um, all levies are being viewed on a daily basis right the way along. We've got an incredible network of people, ground observers, uh, rapid impact assessment teams, and aerial observations going on on all those identified um, potential areas of risk. There you go. That is the talk about exactly what's happening in levies. And actually on that, there is a meeting. There's a next uh, flood drop-in session in the Weeman area. Uh, that's on Thursday, the 24th of November, between 2 p.m. and 3.30 p.m. 
at uh, the Weeman store. It's not this afternoon. It's actually on Thursday, the 24th of November for those in the area. So if you're hearing this and you've heard earlier um, uh, updates, uh, just know that's actually Thursday, 24th of November, 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the Weeman General Store there. That was Alistair Drayton, the incident controller at the Swan Hill Incident Control Centre, speaking there with Angus Verley about levies. I am late for the news. Uh, Courtney Howe has been waiting patiently for us in the regional newsroom for regional news headlines. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Was A man has died in Lyons near Portland after a suspected head-on collision on the Prince's Highway around 1 o'clock this morning. The male driver of one of the vehicles died at the scene. The male driver of the other car was taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Meanwhile, a woman has died in a separate incident at Wood End in the Macedon Ranges. Police believe the car was on South Rock Road just after 2.30 yesterday afternoon when a tree fell onto the vehicle. The female passenger died at the scene and the male driver was taken to the Royal Melbourne Hospital in a stable condition. The state government has promised $3 million for Stage 1 of a Bendigo Regional Employment Precinct if it wins the election. Regional manufacturers have welcomed the announcement, saying the employment precinct is desperately needed to allow manufacturers to expand and meet demand. Bendigo Council estimates the development, which is expected to cost $45 million over a number of years, will create 3,000 jobs. The state opposition has announced if elected this next weekend, the coalition will introduce a department for regional Victoria. The leader of the opposition, Matthew Guy, says the current government has overlooked regional Victorians who make up a quarter of the state. The department will be located in the Latrobe Valley, creating 200 jobs. An advocacy group for rural councils says a dedicated fund should be created to help pay for repairs to communities that have been impacted by floods. Rural Councils Victoria wants the state government to create a fund that would not only help to repair damage to infrastructure, but build it to be more resilient to future natural disasters. And an environmental group says the Alpine region has been forgotten in the announcement of logging protection areas for the state. Immediate protection areas have been allocated for a number of locations, but there are none in the high country. Friends of the Earth has identified four key areas they say have great ecological value as well as community and cultural significance. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon was. Thanks very much for that, Courtney. Courtney Howe there with regional news headlines. On ABC Radio Victoria, you're with Warwick Long for the Victorian Country Hour. Look, the Bureau's having phone line troubles again, but as we say, we love them when they ring in to make sure we get the weather forecast for you. And that's exactly what Hannah Marsh has done for us today, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Gold star, Hannah, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Warwick. <laughs> How's it looking? Is it a gold star day around Victoria today? It definitely is today. Unfortunately, uh, it is just the one gold star that I can give you. But uh, maximum temperatures around the um, 18 to 23 degree mark. So it's been up to 23 degrees at Mildura so far today. Uh, 21.6 at Shepparton, 20 at Bendigo and Horsham and also at Albury. 19.5 so far in the city, uh, 18.9 at Warrnambool and 17.4 so far at Ballarat. And um, not pretty much clear skies throughout the state, just a little bit of cloud on uh, the far east Gippsland coast. And we've seen 0.6 of a millimetre since 9am at Mallacoota. Uh, but we will see high cloud increase from the west as we uh, head into the afternoon and evening period. 
uh, ahead of this system that we do have coming through tomorrow. Associated with that, we'll also see freshening northerly winds. And they will become strong at times, particularly about uh, the ranges uh, over western parts during the morning, central parts uh, during the day, and then northeastern ranges uh, in the evening. So the potential for some damaging winds associated with those fresh northerly winds about uh, higher elevations. Uh, we've also got showers extending from the west, uh, reaching eastern districts later in the evening tomorrow. Uh, also the chance of seeing some thunderstorms as well. And there is the potential for some locally heavy falls with thunderstorms about the central and western parts and also the possible uh, possibility of some damaging wind gusts in the west associated with thunderstorms tomorrow as well. But the best thing to do is to keep up to date with our warnings at www.bom.gov.au as uh, there is a likelihood that some warnings will be issued for this system tomorrow. What kind of warnings? Just severe weather warnings, you think? At this stage, we're looking severe weather warning um, for those winds over the ranges. Uh, for tomorrow, um, there is the chance of seeing some severity with the thunderstorm, so the chance of a possible thunderstorm warning, um, but that one will be issued on a needs basis uh, tomorrow as the thunderstorms start developing. Yeah, certainly so. And what's, I suppose, in terms of rainfall, what do you think those storms are bringing with them? Uh, yeah, so at this stage in terms of uh, rainfall amounts, it's a bit broad. We're talking about uh, 5 to 15 millimetres generally across the state. It will increase to 10 to 20 millimetres about western and central parts with uh, isolated heavier falls of 20 to 40 millimetres with thunderstorms. Uh, but unfortunately, East Gippsland will miss out with just falls of 2 to 10 millimetres on Saturday. But then the shower activity does and thunderstorms continue to move east on Sunday. So we are looking at uh, less than 5 millimetres north of the divide on Sunday, uh, 2 to 10 millimetres on and south of the divide, increasing to 5 to 15 millimetres about uh, the southwest coast and also the eastern and northeastern ranges with uh, some isolated heavier falls of 15 to 25 millimetres uh, in those areas as well and also with thunderstorms. And then I suppose beyond that, what's the weather looking like? Yes, yeah, so it's remaining quite uh, windy as well into Sat uh, sorry, into Monday. Uh, the shower activity will be confined to uh, on and south of the ranges, but we do have some cold air associated with this system which will push, push through on Monday, dropping the temperatures and also we're looking at uh, the snow level dropping to about 800 metres uh, later on Monday. Also the chance of seeing some small hail as well on Monday, but then uh, an easing trend on Tuesday with that snow level rising. Uh, the showers really can be confined to on and south of the ranges and the hail contracting out to the east with a further improvement on Wednesday. And is there any sort of big rainfall events starting looming beyond the, the, the five days of the forecast? No, at this stage, uh, the front that we do have coming through tomorrow is the most significant. There's a hint of another system uh, next weekend, but it is looking like a much weaker system um, at this stage, just with some uh, isolated showers possibly with that.
and watch those flood watches. Watch the severe weather warnings that might pop up over the weekend and just be generally aware that we could have some, some wild weather this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Also, uh, we do have a marine wind warning for uh, the coastal waters as well. So for Port Phillip Bay, Central Coast and East Gippsland Coast for tomorrow, we do have that strong wind warning. So uh, any marine users, be aware of that as well. Great info and thanks for calling in, Hannah. Thank you. Hannah Marsh, Senior Forecaster at the Weather Bureau, taking you through uh, the forecast not only for today but into the weekend and beyond with a bit of rain around this weekend. Doesn't look as intense as last weekend, but look, we've been caught out before. We'll just keep an eye on things and you can update us on the figures and what it's doing at your place and how it's looking on Monday. We'd love to hear that. Speaking of, yeah, rain and effects on crops, let's talk about that now. It was meant to be a bumper cropping season with high yields. It's turned into a year of rapid cost recovery as farmers grapple with wet paddocks. In the northeast of Victoria, some growers are expecting to only recover half of their canola as the rain total tips over a metre for the year so far. Annie Brown spoke with Andrew Russell, a grower at Lilliput, just outside of Rutherglen, about the record amounts of rain at his place this year. We've we've had record rainfall. We've just knocked uh, or we've just achieved one metre of rainfall for the year today, which is, you know, for an area which usually average would get uh, just under 600 mils. Um, so you're looking at another 70% on top of that. So it's very, very wet at the moment and, and a lot of that rainfall has come in the last three months, especially October. And you grow a lot of canola and, and cereals. How are your crops looking at the moment and, and what's your feeling around that? The crops were handling the wet really well early on. Um, and we can, in a, in a wetter year, we can always expect a little bit of waterlogging damage. But this year is exceptional. A lot of the plants, both canola, wheat, cereals, have been sitting in water for long periods of time and they just can't sustain that. It's pretty much they suffocate. So the canola uh, is being worst hit in our case. I'm hopeful that it'll be better than um, 50% recovery, but uh, you know, at this point in time, it's really hard to gauge as to what the damage will be. But I think worst case, we, we need to expect 50% of our crops probably died and gone. So, look, and the cereals are certainly handling the water a little bit better in our area. But just the, these, these, have these big rainfall events, uh, especially in the last month, have just really done most of the damage for us. There has been a lot of other growers, especially to the north of us, that have you know been affected much more dramatically than what we have. So, um, yeah, there's still hope for us, but um, it's gone from a year that could have been, you know, exceptionally good and high yielding to a year which is now going to be really uh, based around cost recovery. So yeah, so you're based in, in Lilliput, so near Rutherglen and on that state border with New South Wales and Corowa, a uh, lot of crop growers in that region. What's yeah, what's the feeling like around the other growers around the community at the moment? Is it a lot of people seeing similar things as well? Yeah, look, through all of my networks, Annie, um, everybody's affected in some way, shape or form, and it is at different degrees. And that, that's going to have a really large impact on both the quantity of, of grain that will be harvested this year and also the quality, I think. So, But it's really hard to predict as to what that's going to be. 
until we actually get the headers underway. The season is running late for us here, so that's actually in our favour. Um, we're running at least two weeks behind, and that's really because of the cool spring that we've we've we've. I don't know if we've enjoyed it because I know I've got a jumper on today. It's cold and it's November. It's sort of, you know, this weather's really out of the ordinary. How does this compare to other wet years that you've had on the farm? Has this been a particularly bad year? <clears throat> yes. Uh, so we've been farming here for 26 years and this is the worst year that I've ever experienced. 2016 was a wet year for us. We, we received, I think it was about 750 millimetres of rain that year. And we had a lot of crop damage. That, that's the closest year that we can compare this year to. Uh, this year far exceeds 2016. I think the crop damage will be a lot worse, a lot more extensive. And what's the access to your farm looking like at the moment? The, the, what shape are the roads in? Yeah, the, the roads have been impacted really, really quite negatively. And understandably, they've just had enormous amounts of water across them. Um, our roads have been rivers on quite a few occasions, you know, which has taken the top off them in, in a lot of cases. But I think just the roads in general, because they've just copped a hammering this year um, and with traffic still on them, obviously, we all need to get where we're going. Yeah, it is a concern going forward once the grain trucks start rolling, uh, just the condition of the roads and grain being delivered to its end point. It could be a bit problematic. So we're all going to have to just be really careful, I think, going forward. It's Andrew Russell, cropping farmer from Lilliput uh, near Rutherglen, speaking to Annie Brown at over a metre of rain for the year. That's just incredible, really, isn't it, when we start talking figures like that? Uh, I'm not quite ready to start talking yearly rainfall figures, but keep keep them at hand for later in the year because after a year like this, we do need to... uh, put a bow on it and talk about those figures on the country hour at least one day don't we yeah so make sure you have them handy for some day in in the near future zero four six seven eight four two seven double two. if you ever want to text us on the program or you can email country hour all one word at abc.net.au that's country hour at abc.net.au let's talk about something a little bit different right now the chance to generate a new income stream for an existing asset is often the lure to encourage farmers to develop accommodation on their properties. But for those not yet on board with farm stays or Airbnb or anything like that, there's a lot to think about. And that was the focus of an expo for those around the Bucken area presenting there was Jen Clark. So we're looking at the various aspects of hosting, of running accommodation, um, and sort of looking at that through a lens of five different pillars, I guess. So things like sustainability, accessibility, social responsibility, all these sorts of things that have become more important, particularly sort of after the advent of COVID. Um, There's a a big movement towards uh, people seeking more uh, ethical, I suppose, properties or properties that are run with more ethical sort of values and also just broadening, I suppose, broadening our reach. So becoming more inclusive and um, catering to people who have diverse needs and those sorts of things as well. Um, So thinking, you know, outside of the square, I guess, is the kind of all-encompassing way of putting it. Are people doing that? Are they making their spaces um, 
widely accessible? At the moment, only one in 25 properties is deemed accessible. So that's about 4%, which is, I think, is not good enough or nowhere near good enough. Um, so for anyone who has specific accessibility needs, they're very limited in what they can, you know, where they can choose to holiday. Richard Hoxley is Principal Planner at Crowther and Sadler. He spoke at the Expo in Bucken and said it's important to consider your local council's planning scheme when establishing accommodation on your property. It can deal with a number of things such as uh, style of buildings and and consideration of the natural environment, um, amenity to neighbours, having regard to other activities around them, particularly with farming and so forth, so as to ensure that what's around isn't being impacted or uh, restricted as a result of uh, visitors and accommodation being offered. Um, Having regard also to protection of the environment, native vegetation, uh, wastewater disposal and those sorts of things that, you know, are pretty much um, day-to-day, but uh, take a different context with accommodation and intensification of development on on particularly rural land that often has fewer services to it. Um, And then there's, of course, the consideration of making sure that people and their guests are kept safe. We've you know, uh, East Gippsland has, a, has challenges with natural hazards, as they're, dis, as they're often described, but with, between bushfire and flood and, and things like that, and, and storm conditions as well, making sure that people are able to come and visit and be safe as they come, stay and leave. And so on that, is it a difficult thing to do to get to build something and get it set up as an accommodation premise on your property? It can, look, it, it can be challenging. Um, difficult, I'm going to say no, but... I think that's somewhat subjective as well. Um, for someone with less experience in the planning realm and understanding um, the planning controls and other controls as well, uh, regulatory controls, um, they could see it as very challenging. Um, but for people that operate in that space daily, such as myself, um, we don't see it as necessarily complex, but it is a process. Is it something that there's a lot of demand for? Do a lot of people come to you um, looking for you to do this sort of work? Look, we do a field, a, a reasonable level of inquiry, I'll say, on an annual basis. Um, it's not a huge proportion of our work um, because a lot of it can be undertaken. As I say, most people will run a B&B um, on their own uh, and not necessarily trigger or require planning approval. There's probably a number of others that are doing it without all the, the regulatory control in place and they fly under the radar. Um, so... Look, we we deal with some a variety, um, and and yeah, it's common, but not necessarily the bulk of our work. And why should you do it the right way? Well, the implications can be significant if you don't, um, you know. And and equally, the effects, as we've seen with the presentations, you want your guests to have a good experience, and as part of that is making sure you're running it properly, safely, um, and sustainably in some instances and with and, and having regard to the environment so the planning process helps to balance all of that um we as as planners we're sort of the jack of all trades um got to know a, a little bit about everything but not necessarily be an expert other than in in we'll say the planning process that's richard hoxley from crowther and sadler in bansdale uh, ending that report from Peter Somerville. Uh, interested to know if you've made those changes. You can always give us a call, 1300 two. Was it difficult? Was it easy? Let us know. That would be great to hear. Uh, now to the country hour. It's a bit of a, I don't know, do we call this a, a, a sad 
story for the future of the pub, certainly stared in terms of what happened to the publican. A small pub on the road to nowhere, really, at the edge of a desert, has been left without a publican. The Wheatsheaf Hotel in Netherby sits on the edge of the big desert and for decades has been the only place for locals to gather after the demise of other local institutions, shall we call them. But it's all in question now after long-time publican Reg Sands died, leaving the future of the pub in limbo. Jason Gordon, a local farmer and long-time patron of the pub, delivered the eulogy at Reg's funeral and spoke about Reg's life and the future of the pub with Angus Verley. Oh, well, Reg Sands ran the um, Chief Hotel at Netherby for nearly 30 years, as far as we can tell, and um, uh, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, lost his 17-year battle with prostate cancer. He um, was a bloke who came from Geelong and bought the pub on a duck shooting weekend and returned home to tell his family in Geelong they were moving to, to Netherby. They've since all moved on, and now with Reg gone, uh, we all fear that we won't have a pub at Netherby. Jason, tell me about Reg and what sort of publican he was. I mean, I've, I've been into the Netherby pub and he he had a certain sort of style as a publican, but just just talk me through what he was like. Well, Reg was mostly a grumpy bloke. He um he loved to uh, give his opinions on all and sundry. He was well respected because uh, he he did give his opinion. He he didn't really care what anybody thought about him. He loved kids and, and it was a bit of a softy at heart. But the pub was sort of like a meeting place for everybody in the community and uh, Reg was open all hours to all comers and it's just uh, going to be a big hole in the whole community with Reg's passing and just his iconic way of being able to uh, to diffuse or light up a situation or it was always good banter at the Netherby pub when you went there. And Jason, too, I understand that you actually did the eulogy at Reg's funeral and and uh, the funeral sounds like it was very much appropriate to the to the sort of man that Reg was and, and the life he lived. Oh, look, Reg, well, I reckon Reg would have been really happy with his send-off when he had the thing in the Netherby Hall and then at the conclusion of the eulogy, the pallbearers all cracked the stubby while everybody exited outside and formed a guard of honour with a can in hand while we walked the coffin down the main street of Netherby and put Reg in, in the hearse for his last trip away from Netherby. And as you said, nearly 30 years behind the bar. I mean, a lot of publicans don't don't last too long and very few last that long. It's not an easy game, but uh, Reg obviously stuck it out. Oh, look, um, I think uh, it was said in the eulogy that he's... Uh, Bearing price drinks and uh, intent on giving his opinion more than hospitality seemed to be a recipe that worked. And um, he had no competition, of course, at Netherby, but people used to drive for miles and miles just to go and have a drink at the Netherby pub. And and then on your way home from somewhere, whether you'd been up north or or whatever, you'd divert to go through Netherby and see what Reg knew because you always seem to know all the local gossip and who bought what farm and what footballer was going where and who won what and who did who. So, yeah, they're a font of knowledge. What does it mean now for Netherby? Because once upon a time, I think Netherby had quite a few churches, a footy club, a tennis club, a cricket club. All those things are long gone, but the pub to this point has remained. 
Uh, I guess there are question marks over its future, but do you know what's going to happen to it and what's going to mean if it does stay shut? We're all hoping somebody sees an opportunity there to come to Netherby. Um, it's going to be sold. Reg's uh, son, Adam's expressed an interest in selling the, the business because he doesn't live here. And how important is it to have that that gathering point, that watering hole, particularly now, I suppose, when... There are fewer pubs than ever. There are fewer people than ever. Farms are much bigger than ever. Uh, just to have that, that place to be able to, to congregate. Oh, look, these things are so important to the thread of local community. We keep taking and taking and taking, and then we wonder why there's going to be no one left to, to make. Just, just losing this little pub in the Netherby district will, will mean lots of people have got nowhere to go to socialise. It's, you know, 30 kilometres from... Neil to Netherby, so that's 30k someone's got to go to, you know, have a drink on a Friday night. Maybe that's what they look forward to all week out, out in the bush working and, and all those little things that just seem to be disappearing over a period of time make it harder and harder for us to encourage people to come and live in the country. Losing it will be bad for the district and bad for the town of Netherby. It's the last thing in Netherby and um, it'll just become a ghost town, I suppose. That's Jason Gordon, a farmer and long-time patron of the Netherby Pub, uh, speaking with Angus Verley, actually called the, the Wheat Chief Hotel, which is a magnificent name at Netherby with its future in the balance after long-time publican Reg Sands has died. Uh, keep it, us up to date with the future of that pub. Would love to know. I hope it has a future and some details. Anybody who does have details on the future of that pub and can give it to us, make sure you uh, you please do because it is well sad for a lot of communities, particularly if you're in the middle of nowhere on one of those roads which don't really go anywhere else. Love to uh, hope. I'd love to think that these pubs like that have a future. So you can always get in contact with the ABC closest to you or send us a text or give us a call here at the country, our 1300 977 222. This week on Landline, we go mining for the crucial fertiliser phosphate. This is basically the old inland sea. Millions and millions of years of uh, sedimentary runoff. The phosphorus is basically mixed up with clays from the inland sea. And earning money for carbon captured in soil. I'd like to know every kilo of beef that I've put on the animals, how much carbon we're putting back in the soil. That's Landline, Sunday 12.30 on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. And that's about all the time we have for you on the Country Hour for another week. Remember our website, abc.net.au slash rural. You can read a lot of stories or more information on a lot of stories that we've brought you today and this week on the Country Hour, like that scam that is targeting farmers, particularly farmers' invoices via email or thought to be via email. You can read about that right now on the website or you can actually read more about that beautiful story we had earlier in the week of the the Pacific Island workers from Samoa who were helping out with uh, sandbagging in the northwest of Victoria. Their singing was beautiful. Some of the photos are great too, so go and check that out. Many other stories that we've done throughout the week too on uh, potato crops being washed away by rains, and there's other stories from around Australia as well. Speaking of spuds, the biggest spud shed or production facility, I believe they call it, in the, in the Southern Hemisphere. It's been opened in South Australia. You can read all about that online right now, abc.net.au slash rural. And just to reiterate, we started the program today talking about some of the impacts 
of flooding in Victoria. The livestock death toll is nearly 8,500 in Victoria, and we're looking at 96,000 tonnes of hay and silage that has been damaged or lost due to the flooding event. The numbers are really adding up. We'll stay with you. You keep telling us what's happening as well. We'll catch you on Monday.